Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Lannan, and I am your host again. Uh, I've got two incredibly well-regarded writers of military science fiction here tonight. First is Linda Nagata, author of The Red First Light, the first novel in the Red Trilogy from Simon & Schuster's Saga Press. She's been nominated for the Nebula Award and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, and she's published a boatload of short stories, which I cannot recount here. Welcome, Linda. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. The other gentleman is Marco Close, who's the author of the Frontline series, which began with Terms of Enlistment, then Lines of Departure, and the most recently released Angles of Attack. He was born and raised in Germany, and he now resides in the great free state of New Hampshire. Welcome, Marco. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I I read one of your bios in some article that you wrote somewhere. Did you move to New Hampshire specifically because of its freedom-loving nature? Sort of, kind of, yes, yes, um, a little bit, because it's, it's, uh, there was this whole thing that went on a few years back that was the Free State Project, and, and we kind of tagged onto that. We didn't move primarily for that, but we like the, you know, we're, we're kind of libertarian leaning, and we like the, uh, we like the, uh, the, uh, there's this culture of kind of self-sufficiency here in New Hampshire, and you know the whole no sales tax, no income tax thing also helped. So uh, it, it had a lot of appeal. Plus, I used to live here before when I first moved to the U.S. I lived in in Nashua, which is in southern New Hampshire, uh, for a year, and I liked it. So I kind of conned my wife into moving up to New Hampshire with me. Uh, it's interesting. You know, I live in Texas, so I always I think Texas and New Hampshire have something in common in that, like, they're constantly making overtures about trying to. Um, you know, try, try to outlive free or die each other. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and then, of course, um, Linda lives in Hawaii, which is the furthest state from the continental United States. And yet, um, as far as I know, has never had a serious secession movement. Well, Correct. no, but we started off as a republic. So, well, actually a kingdom before that. So there's a lot of history there. But but nobody's tried to, to leave the union anytime recently. Correct. Mm, I think that. There are people who would be interested in that, but it's not a big movement, shall we say? I asked the two of you to be on tonight to kind of talk about military SF without actually really considering the fact that both of you took a a, a kind of similar pathway to publication with your two uh, series that you're in the middle of, both self-published before being picked up by a larger publisher. And Linda, did you have any expectation of that outcome? No, I didn't. Um... I had just decided that, you know, I had been traditionally published in the past, but I just decided that I would probably be better off at this point in my career to self-publish the novel for a lot of reasons that we can get into if you want to. But I did not expect it to be picked up by a traditional publisher. I figured once I self-published it, that would be it, that nobody would be interested in it after that. What about you, Margo? Um, I was kind of at the end of my rope because I had done that whole, you know, submission query, querying all the agents in the book and, and all the publishers that I wanted to get in with. And, uh, I was, it was, it was sort of like a last straw thing for me. Like I was about to hang it up and become a Walmart greeter or something. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really have expectations that it would go anywhere. I certainly didn't anticipate it blowing up like it did, but, uh, um, it was, it was just like, okay, I want this out there and I don't even care how many or how, how, how few people read it. I just, you know, this is like the last, the last trick in my bag, so to speak. But no, I did not have any great expectations for it. And Linda, you, you didn't even put uh, the red ad on submission, right? This was just something that you said, I'm going to self-publish this and that was the plan. That's correct. I, 
basically I had a big chip on my shoulder at that point. I was already self-publishing a couple of fantasy novels and was having a lot of fun doing it. And I just didn't want to sit around basically for a year and wait to see if anybody wanted to publish it. I mean, the way I looked at it, I have a little article on my blog about this, but, you know, I'm a woman. I'm writing high-tech science fiction and writing military science fiction with a first-person um, male protagonist. It's just all the factors that add up to not making this book marketable. <laughs> so I just figured, why bother? And I, I took it out on my own. I haven't seen uh, the cover of, of your book, Marco, when you first self-published it, but I have to think uh, one of the most exciting parts of actually getting picked up was the fact that between the two of you, I think, Linda, you got a Larry Roston cover, I think, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and you got a Mark Simonetti cover, Simonetti cover, Marco, mm -hmm. right? Yep. That had to be yeah, thrilling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much. I, I thought I had a good cover for the self-pubbed edition, um, but, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, I, I wish I could make that <laughs> memory all, because the Mark Simonetti cover is so much better. Uh, and he's done all the covers for the Frontline books so far, and he's and they're really great. Yeah, I'm in a, in a very similar situation. I really like the the self pub cover. Yeah, the Larry Rostent cover is just it's just amazing. And it was kind of a funny story behind that because um, when um, Saga decided to put that cover on there, I was um, sitting in the airport at Seattle SeaTac, waiting for a very delayed flight back home. And uh, Joe Monty, my editor, was uh, sending me pictures of models, hot dudes, shall we say, who were going, they were looking for someone to pose for the cover shot. It was entertaining, let's say, to see get uh, <laughs> email after email of hot guys to look at while I'm waiting for a plane. Which one of these catches your fancy most? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the irony of it all is like... Uh, uh, our hot dudes marketing to the uh, to the military SF uh, reader. Know. You know who knows. Let's let's see. Yes. Um, you said something in there, Linda, that I find uh, curious, which is that I was a woman writing military science fiction from a first person perspective and and questioning its marketability, sort of on those factors. It, I'm curious a little bit about about that whole nature with military science fiction. But there's been this idea that like military science fiction is incredibly commercial and is incredibly uh, appealing to a huge reader base. And I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, do you, do you, did you question your book's marketability based on the fact that you were a woman writing a first-person man or because sort of military science fiction in general is maybe a niche? Mostly on, on the first. I don't know. I've been spending way too much time on Twitter, which can be a very negative environment. And when I first started writing, I was writing hard science fiction, and it never crossed my mind that this was maybe not a good idea for a woman to do. And yet, when you're on Twitter, all you hear is that this is a bad thing. It doesn't work, it won't sell, nobody will buy your, your books. And so I, I just really felt a very similar thing about this book, in that I don't come from a military background I'm writing from a male protagonist, first-person point of view. It just was what I had been led to believe would not work in the marketplace. So it's almost like in calling attention to the fact that not a lot of women write hard science fiction or military science fiction, that it sort of discourages those who are writing it to try to sell it? I think it discourages people from just trying it. 
I really feel that way. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Marco, you've presumably written a lot of things that aren't military science fiction. Yes. Yes. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the first thing I ever tried writing. I mean, I've done fantasy and and general fiction and and you know dipped into YA a little bit and uh, but uh, this the the military sci-fi I figured. I knew there was a market for it, and I kind of wanted to have a vehicle to kind of work out my own, you know, experiences in the military. Not necessarily like in a, in a therapeutic sense, but just to have a, 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 like I said, a vehicle for having, working in all these sensory details and all those, you know, this this hurry up and wait stuff and this stuff that makes the veterans, you know, that read the books, email me and go, yeah, it totally takes me back to basic training, uh, stuff like that. You know, I, I wanted to have something to use those memories while they were still in my in my head before you know it all goes goes down the goes down the memory hole so uh, it was it was a uh, not really a therapeutic thing more of a um i like reading military sci-fi it's a fun genre and i wanted to do something that was fun but also allowed me to kind of use my own knowledge in a in a way that's like you know cuz you could always kind of tell like like you, there, there's a lot of military sci-fi out there that's really great that was written by people who didn't serve in the military. And so that's not necessarily a, um, an indicator for quality, but there, there are just these little things that you notice, you know, that, that when, when the, the person who wrote it wasn't in the military, where they get just like very tiny things wrong that, um, uh, I, what I have in mind, right? For, for example, Scalzi, uh, uh, John Scalzi stuff. Obviously, like Old Man's War uh, sold extremely well, and it's a, it's a really great novel. It's kind of like revitalized the genre. But there was like stuff in there. For example, like he had his uh, tough bitten drill instructor sergeant uh, demonstrate the weaponry for the recruits, and he's aiming the gun at another at a recruit and pulling the trigger to show that you know the safety features of the weapon and it's like if you've served in the military you're like oh no you know this <laughs> this would not happen i don't care how many safety features are on that gun no drill instructor would aim a weapon you know at somebody else like it's, it's just and this is not it's, it doesn't sink the novel it's not even remarkable in that like a lot most people wouldn't catch it but the veterans read it and they go uh and, and, and so I wanted to have something where it was, you know, a little bit of an ego thing too. It's like, can I pull this off, and and uh, can I have fun with it and have the verisimilitude in there from my own military experience? So it was more, it was it was kind of an ego thing for me. I like the honesty. Anytime somebody says it was kind of like an ego thing for me, I love it. I'm like, yeah, yeah there's some <laughs> well, honesty true. for it's you. <laughs> somebody asked me the other day, Justin, why do you blog? And I said, like, because I like people reading thing. what I think. <laughs> exactly. What's interesting about military science fiction to me is that it is a very specific thing in a way that like a lot of subgenres are not. You know, like when you say go urban fantasy, well, I don't know, urban fantasy is like this thing, who knows exactly what it is. It could be five or six different things. But when we say military science fiction, like we have a very specific concept of that, I think. Linda, yeah. What do you think is what makes a military science fiction book? I think there's a couple of big different varieties. I mean, mine is like very near future on Earth. And then you have the other, the other one that has FTL travel, multiple planets, um, interplanetary warfare. So I think there's, you know, it's a couple of different kinds, but seems to be essentially out to cover something to do with the military experience. It's it's kind of tropey too in in a way that a lot of genres are there. there 
genres that are more tropey than others. And I, th I think military sci-fi is very much in like romance in that the, re <laughs> the readers like their books a certain way. It's like, like a friend of mine says, you know, you, it's, it's like when you go to the zoo, you're either happy to see the giraffes again or you're not. And people who read military sci-fi and romance, you know, are especially happy to see the giraffes again. You know, you got to give them the tropes like the, the hard ass boot camp and the, the drill instructors and, you know, the, uh, the weird aliens and the, the power armor and all that stuff. You know, people are, are very happy to see that again. It's tropey, but it's a, it's a very commercial trope. I got one out of those four. <laughs> <laughs> We had to, you know, power armor. You got to have, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a given. Uh, I don't, I don't have power armor. <laughs> I have well, exoskeletons anyway. Both of you didn't mention something that I think is kind of central to military science fiction, which is is first person. Um, if you look at sort of like the iconic military science fiction books, John Stakely's Armor, Starship Troopers, Forever War, mm -hmm. uh, Old Man's War, you know, some other stuff like Karen Lawachi's War Child and uh, Germline and some of these others. They're all first person. Uh, both of you wrote in the first person. There's a few that aren't like Tanya Huff's Valor's Choice or uh, Gene Johnson's A Soldier's Duty. Jack Campbell doesn't write first person, but it, it seems like there are a lot more first person than not. Do you think there's a reason for that? I would just guess. I've never thought about it before, but I would guess that it's a way of personalizing something that can be really big and hard to grasp. To, to tell a story about a war, an overall war, would be really challenging and maybe not edge-of-the-seat stuff. But if you look at it from the point of view of one particular soldier, then it can really bring the reader into that, the emotion of, of it, I think, more than third person can. Yeah, that, I think you pretty much nailed, you, you nailed it there with the... Uh, um the immediacy is the because you're it's, it's we're going back to the trope thing it's kind of like a, a a soldier's eye most of those novels that you mentioned are are totally soldier's eye um and and the the way to bring that across best is, is first person um i actually tried to do the, the the first front lines book i started it in third person past tense you know just regular you know f fairly uh, uh conservative uh, narrative and and so i wrote the first chapter in each perspective and tense forms, um, you know, in first person, present tense, and in third person, past tense. And I, I wrote it in first person first, and then in third person. And then when I read over it in third person, like all the energy just kind of went out of it, kind of like deflating a balloon, you know, and, and, and I think it's because you have the, the, this, this trope that people expect that, that, that it's a, um, usually, uh, uh, Often, not always, the coming of age thing, you know, like Starship Troopers, a uh, young guy joins the military, becomes a man, or, you know, a young woman joins the military, becomes, you know, a, but, it, but it's, it's more when you have the, the, the point of view behind, right behind the, the main character's eyes, um, it, it gives immediacy to the story that you don't get with third person. So I, I think that, that military SF definitely lends itself better to that, which is probably why it's so popular. Boy, it gets really hard to tell some of these stories in just first person. <laughs> there were points in these three books when I was starting to regret that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I hear you. So I have the same problem. I'm running into narrative um, limitations with it that, you know, while, it is, while it's an asset, when you can pull it off, and it's, it really gives energy and immediacy to the story, but the problem is you don't know what the main character is, doesn't know, and... You, in order for him to be where the action is, you got to come up with these increasingly uh, 
creative scenarios where he has to be or she has to be right where the action is without you know any supernatural events or without anything that makes the reader say oh come on you know because <laughs> you know you have the young sergeant or a young private who is not usually privy to you know general staff level discussions about strategy or tactics or whatever so you gotta you gotta have him him or her in a position to describe kind of like slightly a little bit the bigger picture and still make it believable which can be really hard in first person mm-hmm. agreed one of the things that the two of you address that, again, I think is fairly common in military science fiction, and maybe the point of military science fiction at times, is that although it is very immediate often, you know, as you guys talk about this first person in the action kind of thing, that it's actually not often about the war at all. It's about why wars are fought at all. And... It becomes very much a discussion about the politics of war. And I think, you know, if you kind of figure where the, where the genre started, uh, you know, with Heinlein and, and, uh, and, uh, Haldeman, you know, I mean, both veteran, uh, bo- both guys who have this very much this conversation around sort of, uh, wars that dominated their time and how they responded to it as individuals. Uh, and as, um, as Marco alluded to, they come from a sort of a veteran's perspective. Do you agree that the, that military science fiction is often about the, the political nature of war as opposed to like the war itself? I think I was just more interested in the why of service of of being a soldier. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of politics in my book. That's an interesting question. I, something I haven't thought about. It's almost a given that you have to delve into the politics because that's where the conflict comes from and the the, the perils of the soldier like like a lot of people who will who have served will, will nod their heads at this is that sometimes the biggest threat for the for to the individual soldier doesn't come from the enemy it comes from your own leadership and and we we fought wars in the past for for you know quote unquote the right reasons like like for example you know world war ii you know ridding the world of 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 genocidal tyranny that sort of thing and then we fought wars for 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 completely insane in retrospect completely insane reasons um so it's not uncommon to be a soldier and to be sent to war where you necessarily don't necessarily agree with it not only do you not agree with it you're like you know and 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 these are young men and women that we send into battle and they're not stupid um you get you get caught up when you when you get indoctrinated um in the military and and you before you join the military you have these all these notions of of you know what it's like to be a soldier but it's you know the reality is is not usually what what you know young kids expect the military to be and then once you're in it, and, and, you, and you, most people are in that in that formative stage where they where they um, um, start to develop their conscience and their and their intellect to the point where you know it's it's it, this is this is part of the reason why recruits are young. It's not just because they're physically at their peak. It's also because they're the easiest to indoctrinate and keep towing the line. And it's the the older guys who are usually you know the the battle weary uh, ones who question the uh, uh, um 
you know the reasons and the politics and the stupid leadership and i i, I went into that in the in the later novels there's definitely a great deal of politics in it but i didn't go into it by saying okay let's make a book about you know the stupid politics of war it just kind of seems to be like a natural progression and it's a good in, in terms of writing fiction it's a good source of conflict because if you only have a military sci-fi novel where it's all about battles with the enemy and and everybody you know and and the battles won and the bad guys are really bad and the good guys are really good and there's you know it's there's just this black and white thing it becomes boring because then it's just like a you know a uh a uh, uh, um, first-person shooter in prose form, you know, there's nothing interesting to it. There's no conflict there. I mean, other than the military conflict, but, you know, just just blowing stuff up or, you know, sh waging war against the enemy is in itself not interesting or exciting. You know, you have to have a motivation and you have to be, you know, wh why, why do I care about these people shooting up these aliens? You know, wh what are the stakes? Um, so so the, it, it's a there's a great deal of, of conflict potential there, and it's not unrealistic. I mean, it's it's more realistic than not to to have a, a an inept leadership or an, a, a military leadership or a civilian leadership that has ulterior motives for invasions and stuff like that. So it's 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 it comes out of real life, and it's great story potential in, in terms of conflicts. Well, and Linda, your protagonist is. Speaking of um, civilians with ulterior motives, your protagonist is extremely uh, cynical about defense contractors and the role that they play within the military structure as though he has been sent to war to appease the bottom line. Right. Yeah, that is definitely the, the way the novel opens. He is completely cynical about the reasons for the, the ongoing war in, in the start of the book. And, um, you know, which doesn't interfere with him doing his job, doing a good job, but he's not looking at it in, with rose-colored glasses, shall we say. You mentioned earlier that you were very curious about the nature of service and kind of looking at why people serve and why people make that choice. Right. Uh, but your protagonist, again, uh, kind of had that choice made for him, uh, which is also kind of something we see a lot in military science fiction, where it's not necessarily somebody's stepping up because it's, they feel a calling. They're stepping up because either they have to or there's no other option. What kind of drove you in that direction? I've just been very interested in, you know, over the past many years, not really recently, but there's been objections to um, military recruiters being on high school campuses. Uh, objection, there used to be objections to ROTC programs in colleges. And I've not I've never understood that that kind of that level of hostility to military service um but as they say it's it's very traditional so a lot of families where the father and the grandfather were in the military for some period of time then their children will tend to go into the military whereas in other uh other social groups nobody serves nobody thinks about it and that's where my protagonist came from. The whole idea of, you know, when he was a teenager, of actually wanting to be in military service it just would have never crossed his mind. And I think that's, that's really not a healthy thing for the country, that the military should be drawn from across the board, from all social groups, from all states. And that right now that the 
those who go into the military tend to be much more um, much more often from certain regions of the country is just not the way that it really should be. So I, I'm interested in what inspires people to go in and um, and why they would absolutely not ever consider it. And Marco, your protagonist, he, he volunteers, but he really doesn't have another choice. Do you kind of come up to it from a similar place as Linda or...? Uh, not precisely. It was, it was kind of, that consideration was kind of secondary because what I mostly wanted to do with it was to, to, to kind of play with the trope because usually the trope is that the, the military is, is, you know, so rough and tough in the, in the, you know, in those dystopian environments and, and it's, it's extremely, you know, the, the, what, I was like, okay, what what if the boot camp is tough, but what if the instructors, like you have this, you be all you can be, and everybody here can be a Marine, you know, if they put their heart in it, and the the instructors really having a vested interest in you succeeding, because, you know, the, the that's, that's a lot of resources that the military is spending on your training, and they want, uh, I wanted to kind of stand the trope a little bit on its head, and I wanted to have a a, a future military where they have so many applicants that the instructors basically don't care whether you make it or not because they have like a hundred applicants for every slot in boot camp. So I wanted to kind of play with it and everything else was kind of secondary to that. And, and, and my protagonist just kind of has this, um, you know, he's, he's kind of a little bookish, but, but his main motivation is he wants to not spend his life in the projects, basically like his father, and, and, and basically wants to show up the old man who got kicked out of the military after a few years, and, and just has this sense of, okay, I want to get out of here, and this is, this is my way to do it, but it all came out, come, came out of this, you know, wanting to play with the trope a little bit. It's interesting. So you actually have created a military environment in which the military is the most desirable place to be. Right. Uh, where, as Linda sort of describes today in America, we have the conception that that is, it's, it's only a certain kind of person yeah. who's there. It's, it's interesting how you guys have created, uh, you have that sort of that, you're sort of speaking to the same problem, but using two different examples to, 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 to talk about it. It's kind of interesting, though, because when the recession hit, then there was a big waiting list to get into, um, at least into the Navy. And I'm sure it was the same in the Air Force. I don't know about the Army, because all of a sudden, a lot of um, 18, 19, 20-year-olds and older realized that there were, there were no jobs. And it, it, changed. It, it changed a lot of things, I think. So Marco's um, his extrapolation was actually almost real for a while there. <laughs> It, it was. I remember when I came out of, I graduated college in, in 2003, so right before the recession hit, but I remember calling, uh, I was, you know, looking for jobs, but I was like, you know what, I'll just call the Air Force, uh, you know, I had a, a, a degree in Chinese, and I thought, well, maybe they could use that. So I, I called them, and they're like, yeah, no, unless you want to fly, we're, we're full up. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that. That was after after nine eleven. That was uh. There, there's there's these these spikes that were interesting to see because I've known people who have served all through the post nine eleven um, military, and after nine eleven the the military was basically flooded with with applicants and recruits, which was when you called up the air force and they were like, ah, no, we're good. And then the, when as the war dragged on in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we had all these casualties, and recruitment went down toward 
the mid-2000s, where they had problems retaining people, where they were offering these insane re-enlistment bonuses for like, you know, if I had a friend in the Marines uh, who, they, they offered him $90,000 for re-enlistment, you know, which is, you know, to, to a, a, a private first class who's making, you know, 23000 a year, you know, they're offering you four years worth of pay for re-enlisting. So there was this this period in the mid-2000s where there was a really, they had really had problems retaining people. Nobody wanted to be in the military anymore because they saw the footage coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan and the war was just dragging on. And then the recession hit and then all of a sudden the military became attractive again um, for all those reasons. You know, it's a it's, it's a paycheck when you have, have nothing else. It's either be on the dome or go to the military. But it's interesting how the pendulum swings according to what goes on in the real world and what the situation is. And it can change like within 10 years, it swung back and forth twice. Yeah, it's hard to believe when I talk about 2003 and recognizing how close that was to 9-11 and then also how close it is to the recession, you know, what, three years later, four years later, and then the fact that that was 12 years ago is yeah. hard to imagine. Uh, it's like, where does the time go? But uh, a minute ago, Marco, you mentioned some, some thoughts about... Uh, Linda, one of you mentioned something about the nature of the fact that uh, the red is this very, you know, on earth, near future, uh, dealing with human conflict uh, against each other. And Marco, your first book starts out that way, right? It's very mm -hmm. much this, this uh, dealing with humanity being shitty to one another, right. and, and sort of this world that's been created that's sort of shitty. And, but then your conflict becomes, you know, big aliens, uh, and it becomes right. sort of a whole different narrative, and, you know, sort of like, humanity better get their shit together, or they're going to get, you know, stomped. That human-to-human -human conflict is very powerful. It's very powerful in Linda's book. Why did you make a choice to go and say, you know what, I'm going to go shoot some thousand-foot-tall aliens? <laughs> <laughs> it seemed more fun. I didn't want to slide off into this. I could have stayed on Earth. Well, first of all, I wanted to get Andrew into space because that's that was the he you know the, the the main twist of the first book is that he really wants to join the Space Navy, and then he gets the assignment. He basically gets to be a riot cop on Earth and police the very people that you know the the same society that he came from, which is something that he totally didn't want to do. So I could have basically written a bunch more novels of this dystopian environment. Uh, and it wouldn't have been a lot of fun. I mean, you can explore the human condition and do all this stuff and still have fun. I basically put the aliens in because it's more fun that way. And uh, and, and I, I still did address... And, and, and when I decided to go into space and I decided to have this alien thing happen, I wanted to see what happens in that particular world. Like you said, humanity better get its shit together and all that. But what if they really don't in the beginning? What if even what if you don't have this Independence Day scenario where the aliens show up and then humanity stands, you know, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and puts aside the old differences and then you know defeats the alien What what if this is that realistic? Is that what would happen in real life? And 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 I figured in in my world, in my future world, it doesn't happen at least not at first, and and never in this you know Independence Day uh, way. Um, but what if what if humanity still can't stop bickering even in the face of this 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 lethal threat that's like a civilization ending threat we still mess with each other's stuff and we still have the old grudges and we still can't get our shit together and uh, so i wanted to kind of explore that it, it, it was I, I could do the same thing you know as in terms of uh, this whole human condition and 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 what that would mean for humanity but i could have aliens too and have have my fun with them so, Linda, I've only 
I've only had contact with your first book. Your other two are, are as yet unpublished. And you decidedly, at least in the first book, this is a human conflict, messy human conflict. You made a you made a choice to keep it that way. And I would argue that a lot of what you're doing is almost cyberpunk in its, you know, you have lots of cool little high-tech uh, things like the, there's this thing in her books where this uh, they wear this skull cap that evens out the emotions of the, of the soldiers that are serving on the front lines to make sure they don't become too depressed or too manic or too anything else. It just, it's, it's this very uh, corporate controlled cyberpunk environment that's unique within military science fiction, I think, which often is concerned with these um, more grander scales. It's a deliberate choice. I always tended to write um, at the high tech end of science fiction. And this was an interesting exercise in learning about possible technologies and then trying to apply them in a military context. So, yeah, you're, you are correct. We won't be doing anything interstellar in these books. Um, but there's still going to be a lot going on. <laughs> and I just find it interesting to, to look at um, the way that technology is evolving and rapidly evolving and, and try to see how that might apply in future warfare. Marco used the classic term, human condition, which I... Which, because you know, all great fiction examines the human condition. I, I like to draw parallels between science fiction and fantasy a lot because we like to pretend that they're they're different and these separate things. But a lot of times they deal with a lot of the same stuff. And military science fiction, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the thing we call grimdark in fantasy, which mm-hmm. is this sort of reaction to, you know, pretty epic fantasy. You have this reaction of grimdark. And if you look at sort of like, I'm going to do scare quotes that you can't see, which are, you know, golden age science fiction, military science fiction to me feels in a lot of ways a response to golden age science fiction. It's, it's grimy, it's gritty, it's, it's dealing with all the, the underbelly of stuff that you don't see in pretty science fiction because nobody wants to talk about it. And in a lot of the ways, the same way that Grimdark is. And I wonder if Grimdark doesn't owe itself some debt of gratitude to military science fiction for sort of blazing that trail I am not knowledgeable enough to answer, but I do agree that Grimdark is not that far far off of a description of, of what this is. You know, it, it looks at, at a world that has a lot going wrong with it. But in the end, in, in my opinion, what, what makes a good novel is, you know, it's a challenging environment, but it's, it's the relationships between the characters. So no matter how grim the circumstances are, if you've got some characters that you can care about as a reader and that the characters seem to care about each other, I think that saves the grimmest scenarios. Um, I mean, you have these two conflicting science fiction worlds where you have the Star Trek world, where you have the, you know, the everybody runs around in PJs, nobody's hungry, and, and you have these shiny spaceships with the gar- carpeted floors and everything. And and then you have the, the, the kind of this the Battlestar Galactica thing going on where everything is just, you know, this whole crap sack world thing where everything's nuked to crap and, and the survivors are running for their lives. But in, in the end, I mean, you're, you're telling the same stories just in different circumstances because humans will do the same smart and or stupid things, whatever environment you put them in. It's just a little more um, and, and I, know, I wish I could put my finger on what 
started this recent trend for the for the grittiness you know the the gritty dark reboots like like you know they they grittified batman and then the the battlestar galactica like the 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 one from the 70s was just space camp and and um, you know not space camp as in alabama it was a campy space opera and 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 then the new one was just a kick in the pants i mean it was just nothing like the old uh, galactica and uh but but it's like does it does it matter really whether it's a, a, a you know the Katniss Everdeen world or or the the Star Trek world? You, you still have the same drama. You still have the same uh, you know like like a, uh, and as, as corny as it sounds about this whole human condition thing. Um, is, is is that really just a a current trend? And does it does it really influence the 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 level of of, of I mean is 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 it more dramatic when you have stuff like the Hunger Games or Battlestar Galactica, when you have people in these extreme situations already anyway, when you have, or, or, or you have a, um, a, a, the same stuff like, and you know, you, you were pointing out that, that, that the Grim, Grimdark was kind of a counter, a reaction to the, to the, the shiny, you know, to the Tolkien-esque fantasy and the, you know, orcs and elves and, 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 pretty castles and the you know the shiny fantasy worlds but uh is it really you know is the drama really different or is the is the you know the stupid decisions of the leaders like is is denethor really a, a less impactful character than president snow for example in, in in the hunger games i mean i i don't really think the setting makes so much of a difference in that respect that that you're still telling the same stories and you still have the same impact if you do it right yeah, I think there's something to be said for that, and I think in a lot of cases the the, the difference is just a is a level of cynicism that I think a modern entertainment consumer has come to expect in some yeah, ways. Yeah, it's, it's 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 the it's the uh, Game of Thrones thing. That's uh, like my wife gave up on Game of Thrones after book two when she when there were there was no series yet. She hasn't even watched the television series. That would drive her to near suicide because she she put the second book aside and she was like, I just can't keep reading this because he's too dark. It's like every nobody get everybody gets crapped on. Nobody ever catches a break. I can't keep reading this. So she she bailed after book half half of book number two and I <laughs> you know there's there's something to be said because I'm about done with the series. I love the books but uh but the television series just seems to be like, you know, let's pile on the dark. Let's pile on the misery. Here's some more torture and hey this character, this innocent character, let's just kill her off. So, you know, you can overdo that. When we like to talk a lot about genre being that way, right, like Game of Thrones or the First Law Trilogy or anything Cameron Hurley writes, you know, that's like the super dark, uh, uh, cynical thing. But, like, I, you look at TV, for example, and I don't know, Linda, if you watch TV or not, but... Mad Men and Walking Dead and Breaking Bad, like all of these things are incredibly cynical. And like, we're, we're fascinated by the quote unquote realism of bad people, it seems like. Maybe that's it. I, most of those I haven't watched. I, I watched, um, the first several episodes on, of Mad Men when every, after everybody had been talking about it for a few years. And I guess my reaction was, okay, I get it. Um, I just didn't watch any more after that. I have been watching Game of Thrones. It's um although I almost stopped and then my husband said, Well, don't you want to start watching it again? Oh well I guess so. But I haven't read the books, so this is kind of um the Cliff Notes version of the books for me. When I actually I stopped writing 
almost everything, but definitely science fiction, say around 2001, 2002. And I didn't read a whole lot after that for quite a while. And part of the reason was that this, this nihilism that was so common in the genre, it wasn't, that's not the reason that I read books is to, to hear how terrible everybody is. I can be very cynical in my fiction, but I think at the core, The Red is a, is a book about idealists. And that's, that's what I need in my fiction. And again, I think it goes back to the relationships and the, the deep values of the characters. I can, I completely concur in that you know it's 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 the relationships it's the interpersonal relationships that matter in whatever story you choose to tell and whatever the environment is and then maybe the dystopian stuff just brings it out slightly more but but in the end you know if you don't have interesting characters doing interesting things and 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 having characters that are you know kind of multidimensional the the setting doesn't matter so much you know it's it's the characters that drive the story not the not whether it's it's a crap sack world or a, you know the star trek you know happy pj's world you can you can choose to tell compelling stories in in either genre it's just you know it's, it's, this is it seems to be a little bit more the flavor of the day is that you have this the, you know the crap sack world versus the 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 but but the positive thing about this is and this is why the hunger games this is is not you have people that care for each other you know that make the tough decisions and that you know i mean what what drives the characters in the end is is the you know the especially military sci-fi is, is uh, expected it's almost to a trope where you have doing it for the guy in the in the foxhole next to you it's like it's it's a military thing throughout the ages and it doesn't matter whether it's sparta or you know the revolutionary war or some future science fiction where you go up against aliens and battle armor it's the it's the interpersonal relationships between the soldiers and the you know this whole honor and loyalty and 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 uh, you know camaraderie that that makes the story not so much the setting i'll make this kind of the last question before we wrap up and that is if that's true and i i say if that's true when i i agree that that is true i think a lot of times when people read military science fiction they often come away with the quote-unquote point of it being that war is essentially a, a, a pointless endeavor of running on a treadmill uh, and never really accomplishing anything other than some cockamamie political goal that somebody cooked up and thought was important and we should go to war over. And I think maybe some of the, some military science fiction is only speaking to that, but would you then say, Marco, based on what you just said and kind of what, what Linda got at, that that really the, the point of these military science fiction novels is to demonstrate that we fight a lot of wars, but we fight them for each other, not for some greater purpose? Um, yeah, I mean, that is, that is the, the greater purpose is uh, you know, almost almost always turns out illusionary in the end, but it's, it, it is like, you know, because that's the... the, the real life soldiers experience you know you put the guy in the foxhole and his buddy next to him and they're both you know scared shitless 19 year olds whether you give them a plasma rifle or or a muzzle loader it doesn't matter who they go to war against and and you can have you know the, the like I said, you know, you have wars that, that totally didn't make sense, historically speaking, in retrospect, and then you have wars like World War II, which, you know, if, if, if there ever was, like, a moral large conflict, you know, that would have come closest, but it was still not all Team White going up against Team Black, because Team White did a whole lot of stuff that wasn't savory, and, you know, there was honor and, and, and 
and really vile stuff on both sides, but it did, it didn't matter to the guys on the ground, like to those two 19-year-olds on the foxhole. It, it doesn't matter who you go to war against. I mean, the soldier story, their story is pretty much the same, no matter what 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 era or what genre you tell it in, um, because you know it's it's the universal soldier's experience, and that's basically what military sci-fi boils down to is to to uh, to relay the universal experience of the soldier. Yeah, I think that Marco is right, and you know that harkens back to the tribal sense that whether we want to admit it or not, we all feel um, that you're on your side, and, and your side is is it. And you know, it's always good to feel like you're the good guys. Um, that's pretty important to to my character in this book. Yeah, in the end, the most important people around you are are your fellow soldiers. This fla- this flashback to Futurama, <laughs> when you have the the Fry and Bender, the main characters, joining up for the military, and and uh, <laughs> Zap Brannigan is firing them up by going, "We know nothing about them. We don't we we don't we don't know what they look like. We don't know anything they stand for. All all we know is that uh, they stand for everything we don't stand for. Also, they told me you look like dorks." <laughs> It all comes back to Futurama, right? I mean, <laughs> absolutely. In some way. See, that is groundbreaking sci-fi right there, exploring the human condition. Amen. All right. So to take us out, uh, since we've, we've kind of talked about all these different things, I, I just before we leave, I want each of you to kind of give us a give us a quick elevator pitch on your on your series, and in Linda's case, when people can get the book, and in Margot's case, how how often they can get your book right now so uh okay um the red which is the first novel in the red trilogy will be out june 30th um the trials which is the second novel will follow in august and going dark the last novel will be out in november so it's a rapid release cycle and it is near future military thriller having uh read i haven't finished it yet but i've read most of it and uh the first part the first section is probably the best single, never let up military science fiction section I've ever read. And I've read a lot. But it is, um, like, it is super pulse pounding and to be crude. Like, your sphincter is clenched the entire, <laughs> you know, section uh, until until it's over, until you get to the next part. So uh, it, gets, it gets my highest recommendation. So, Marco, you? Um, I have the, well, the, the, the first book in the series is called Terms of Enlistment that came out in 2013 and 2014 was Lines of Departure, um, which and the follow-up just came out. Uh, the third book in the series is called Angles of Attack, came out in April, and I am currently turning in the, the fourth book in the series, which is called Chains of Command, and I hear it's going to have a January release. Excellent. And I will say about Marco's work, I've read the first two books. I, I haven't read Angles of Attack yet, but I will say it is sort of like all the things that you like about military science fiction done really well. And it reminds me a lot of Jack Campbell's Dauntless series, which is, they're not very similar, but in the same way. That, like, it does a lot of things that, 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 uh, that you love about the genre and does it, does it extremely well. Also gets my highest recommendation. As you know, I don't invite people on my show whose books I don't like, so. So yay, go go out, uh, pre-order Linda's book, buy Marco's, and you'll be very happy. I appreciate you both coming on tonight. Well, thank, thank you, you very- so much. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>